I'm here with Seth Parker Woods um, at his lovely apartment. Um, and uh, thank you for talking to me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having <laughs> me on. Um, so I want to dive in and, and ask you how you first got into music, like as a little baby Seth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, was it an early love of music? Uh, it was. Um, I'm originally from Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. So um, I started quite, quite young, actually at five years old. And there was the school I was at actually had a, um, like a major focus in the arts and sciences. Mm -hmm. And so it came the time, you know, when you go around to the different rooms. I don't know if everyone had this experience or not, but for my school at least, um, you go to the different rooms for music and also theater and dance and so oh, on. Wow. And art and um, you could choose if you wanted to have like a, like a focus or something you wanted to not study, not a major, and it wasn't that kind of situation, but mm -hmm. if you wanted to have an extracurricular from the arts magnet program. Yeah. Uh, and so I went to the different areas, and then I went around to the, uh, well, eventually got to the strings room, and that was Miss Parker's room. And um, <laughs> I have to rewind slightly because I'd seen a film called The Witches of Eastwick, oh. which starred Susan Sarandon and Cher. So <laughs> Susan Sarandon in the film, of course, is one of the witches, but she's also a cellist in the film. <gasps> And so uh, I like really loved the film, and it was like one really like dynamic scene. And she's like playing the arpeggioni sonata. Of course, I did not know at five years old that it was the arpeggioni <laughs> sonata. But uh, but I, but just the the sheer beauty of this instrument and her playing it, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I guess in my head that's it. that's what I thought. And uh, so then I kind of connect the dots when I saw the instruments in the string room in Miss Parker's room, and I saw, of course, a, a much larger size cello than myself at the time. Right. Um, so I um, I said, yeah, I'll try that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, really, Susan Sarandon is the reason that you play cello now? I mean, yeah, you can <laughs> tell her that. You can totally <laughs> tell her that. Uh, yeah, the um, next time I see her, I'll, I'll let her know. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. No, it was, it was, it was um, I, yeah, that was basically the beginnings um, and then, of course, there were other, other influences along the way, but that mm -hmm. was kind of the impetus, we could say, the vehicle for me taking on a string instrument. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the sort of at what point at what point were you like, I think I, I want to keep doing this in the long run. I think I want to do this as my job. Um, well, um, I think it may have been, I think, in middle school, I had a cello teacher at the time who was playing with the um, Houston Symphony, David Garrett, who now, well actually for many decades now, has been playing with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Um, and uh, he was my teacher at the time, and I remember feeling like he had asked me to do this. <laughs> Would have been not a, like a renaissance of the set piece. But right, you know, the original. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> of uh, the folk cellist of the Berlin <gasps> doing all these professional things and like Jose Herrera. Right. Rio Lobos and Hinostera and other pop things. And then he made a recording also, I think, on there was like the Elgar Cello Concerto and like the Swan, La Sanson. And yeah, a bunch of just like the highlights. You right, know? exactly. <laughs> just, I guess, greatest hits. Yeah, exactly. Like an interesting <laughs> range of music uh, for the cello. And whether it was in solo and sonata or um, like duo partners or, of course, the 12 cellos of Berlin Phil in chamber music settings. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of really inspired me. And 
it was kind of then that I really decided that maybe I'll, con- I'll continue on with this. I'm really going to continue on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a teacher. Um, my orchestra teacher at the time was Martin Clancy, who I always call him Mr. Holland because <laughs> I discovered Mr. Holland's opus yeah. <laughs> in that time because he actually played it <laughs> played it as a film. Like on some <laughs> day where like he didn't want to direct. I think we had just finished a big concert or something, oh, okay. spring concert, and it's like, it's like the end of the year. And it was like a movie day. It was, it was movie, movie day. day. Like, it was. We were not going to be rehearsing that day. Right. And he probably did not want to. Do <laughs> as educators, we now I understand. I understand. Oh yeah. Um, so, um, so he put on Mr. Holland's opus, and I, I, I found it to be so dynamic. But he was kind of a major pivotal figure for me at that time. Someone that really saw something, and that's also where I um, discovered the Bach cello suites as well with him. Uh, he himself being a violist, and he was practicing them um, in his office uh, when I would come by in between off periods or whatever. Um, so he was kind of a big figure that kind of helped me uh, decide that maybe this could be a trajectory for me or and that the cello could be um, the tool to le- let me see the world, mm-hmm. and literally figuratively. Um, so uh, yeah, that was kind of like the main pivotal point, and then um we had a there's a very famous um uh performing arts high school in Houston mm-hmm. called the High School for the Performing and Visual Arts or HSPVA. Yeah. Um and so uh he really encouraged me to audition there. My sister also was <laughs> studying there. So it was it was of course I of course knew about it. I had already gone to many concerts there at the school from the yeah. music department. So but uh to actualize and use agency to uh go for that, you know, so I, um, so David Garrett kind of got me together <laughs> yeah. to, to be able to, uh, <laughs> to audition, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and I got in and, um, the rest is history. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were, we were talking a minute ago, um, off the air, so to speak, um, about, uh, you, you really consider yourself like a very much a chamber musician. Did you have some early, like, really positive chamber music experiences? You know, I did, but um, I kind of came to chamber music, um, actually, it was in middle school. Um, I think it was the, uh, I was doing, like, the Jean-Baptiste Breval, like, first cello sonata or something right. like this, and there was an accompanying second cello part, and oh. David used to play this with me, uh, like, in my lessons, you know. Yeah. Like, just so I could understand, you know, secondary polyphonic. Oh, yeah. lines and understand you know where I'm at how to center my <laughs> intonation because whew, I was lost back in those days <laughs> <laughs> and um, but also but then um, Martin uh, um, it, we had like you know the big assembly and like the award ceremony like it's graduating from middle school and uh, that was actually my debut chamber music oh <laughs> my goodness experience where uh, Martin actually played the second cello part with me and I played it on the the, the graduation ceremony <gasps> for the whole class for the entire class and everything and uh, so that was like my first time like doing a solo like anywhere but also like I don't really I didn't really think of it as a solo really because we were really playing together yeah. in that moment. so that was like my first like true you know true experience and then after that uh, at HSPVA of course I, I played in a um, a string quartet, and I also played in a, tri- a trio as well, and I mm-hmm. did some work with a duo with harp. Um, but the trio is kind of really where I found my voice, and like my first big piece was the Mendelssohn uh, first piano trio, oh, and which cool. was like 
a monstrous piece for me. Yeah. And I remember for the big chamber music concert, like the fall chamber music concert was like first played and um, my two collaborators, um, <laughs> Tim and Chris, Tim Hughes, Chris Carson. Chris is still now, uh, still a pianist uh, to this day, professional pianist. So um, so that was like the very early um, experiences where I was like, I really have a voice. I, I can do something here. Okay. Yeah. And and how that was kind of nurtured. And um, and then the t- I guess in the, way s- in the same way, like the teachers I had, you know, over the years in, in my career, uh, the student, um, the, they were all very strong chamber musicians, if not at careers as big chamber musicians. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was a natural yeah. uh, progression and lineage, that, that, that being passed on and the way in which I do play, it kind of reflects that that way, that, that impulsive, uh, raw in some ways, but um, also very insular. Yeah, um, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to like have those very early like formative like chamber music experiences, especially the just crashing and burning, of course. Yes, well, yeah, that. that, that <laughs> but no, that, that stealing like that love. Yeah. I feel like also it, it it like teaches you to to like how to play well with others. Like, yeah. I mean, literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but um, now today, um, you're. <laughs> Um, you are a really strong advocate for new music, for new works. Um, was that something that um, you got interested in a long time ago, or was it something that came later? Or Well, new music, uh, contemporary music, however you like to describe right, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, it actually came in high school. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I got into a program at the Juilliard School and studied with Andre Milinoff. And Toby Apple was actually my chamber coach, the famed pedagogue and uh, violist. But working with Andre, uh, he was at the time, for a very long time, the cellist with the Da Capo chamber players in New York City, mm-hmm. um, which were, you know, it, was a, it still is a, a huge advocate for contemporary music, uh, as well as combining both contemporary and uh, works from the classical canon. So, and he was working with Elliot Carter. He was working with Lou Harrison, or had worked with Lou Harrison, was working with Joan Tower. Mm-hmm. And all these pieces, of, of course, were in his repertoire, of course, but also his students were also playing these works. Um, and so uh, that is kind of how my connection to, because I started playing these pieces and I started studying them with, with Andre. And even after, when I wasn't working with him anymore, I still had these pieces um, with me. And that kind of, that was the start, even though I remember my senior recital, I played like this duo for Cello and Harp by Lou Harrison, and it was, the tuning was just so funky, you know? <laughs> and for the, at the time, and I remember my sister coming up to me after the recital, and she's like, great performance, but was that piece supposed to sound that out of tune? Was it supposed to sound like that? And I was like, uh-huh, yeah. You're it's like, cool, right? Yeah, it was perfect. We played it perfectly. That was how it was supposed like. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was interesting and different and uh, I mean but at the point I still wasn't like oh yeah I'm a new music advocate no I wasn't it was just like something new something I was you were doing, doing yeah. on top of the the stuff from the classical canon and it wasn't until um, I went off to college that I um, I kind of started meeting composers you know young composers who were studying and learning just like me. And you know they had you know the composers' concerts, you know the spring concert, the, the you know the, in the um, winter concert, um, and I had been asked you know to play in various different uh, groups and learning about you know different types of notations outside of the standard, 
but what then we can consider the standard notation mm-hmm. um, and trying to learn these things and lots of crashing and burning myself and frustrations of not really understanding like what is this com- young composer want or like or also trying to grapple with all also like my own technical shortcomings at the time still kind mm-hmm. of in progress of growing and trying to figure out how to do these things or I don't know how to do these things that they're asking and trying to figure them out over time and working with my teachers to try to understand them. Um, and then I got to New York and like worlds just kind of like sprung open yeah. in many ways. Um, because there's so much happening there all the yeah, time. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, but one, I, I was there, but I, even right before I made the jump back to New York, um, I was in Los Angeles in 2006 and I was at a festival called the Henry Mancini Institute Mm -hmm. and um, it was there that I was exposed to Vince Mendoza, composer, arranger, and uh, we were doing Mark Anthony Turnage's uh, British composer, very famous, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Blood on the Floor. Yeah. (coughs) I think it's from a big suite called Cut Up. and that kind of just just blew my mind. Yeah. Different types of rhythms and hybrids of actually adding in drum kit and sax and 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 I think it was trumpet, I think this was like the three main soloists, I think, I can't remember. Um, plus the chamber orchestra on top of that. And then yeah. all these different types of arrangements and meeting these young composers that were, you know, from different parts of the world that had all we, we all kind of uh, descended upon Los <laughs> Angeles for a summer for like a month and a half, I think it was. And we're all kind of working together and coming from very different you know ways of playing and understanding and interpreting yeah. and making music together, which and it was just it blew my mind. And that was like that was like I really feel like the pivotal point yeah. where I was like. Okay, there is definitely a different way to do this yeah. and be <laughs> successful at it, you know? Yeah. And um and so then I got to New York and then I was meeting all these other young composers from school and I was studying there and and um met uh Joan Jean Renault, who was then the uh, for a long time was the cellist uh for the Kronos Quartet in its major pivotal years. Um, meeting her and she was like writing music now and I she would send me the scores of pieces that she had recorded for her own albums and I was learning those learning how to work with loop pedals and all kinds of other things and so it was um, those were the times where I was like okay I'm I'm doing this <laughs> I mean on top of doing the classical work but at the same time, at the same time I was still very much so like I'm gonna be a cellist in a ballet or an opera orchestra that like that was my dream that mm-hmm. was like th- then that was like the dream for me I never really loved the, the the symphonic orchestra all that much yeah um I really loved being a part of the big machine as I call it you uh-huh. know where it's like all these different facets all these different moving parts that are coming together and giving you this one large piece of artwork mm-hmm. and to this day I still do that <laughs> in some ways um <laughs> so uh that was kind of where I really decided that I was going to dedicate some part of my life to doing the music of now. Yeah. I am wondering, because you have, I mean, you have more, like, sort of uh, programming and curatorial experience than I do. Um, uh, What's kind, I'd love to get your take on programming in terms of, you know, some people really believe in uh, having, like, a solid program of, like, you know, nothing before 1970 or, or, you know, some given date, like all new music, like on one program. And some people are like, it should all be mixed in together all the time. Like where you have, 
you know, things from the Romantic era, things that are more like neoclassical and then like new music kind of all alongside each other. What are your thoughts on that? Well, a pianist named Ursula Oppens, very famed pianist, mm-hmm. an old mentor and good friend of mine. I'm actually going to be playing with her in a few months <laughs> in Los Angeles. So that's going to be really exciting to kind of share the stage again after a very long time. Um, she told me once, probably, but it still sticks true to now, you know, play everything. Yeah. Play all the things, you know, don't just do one thing. Mm-hmm. And it shows in her own career. You know, she's been a trailblazer and a champion of both the standard rep and also the contemporary rep. And a lot of these, of course, a lot of pieces have been written for her. She's been the muse of many, many, many com- composers um, from Carter to um, to Meredith Monk and, and, and so forth and Frederick Chesky. So, um, I kind of, I've kept that model in mind. Of course, yes, I do have programs where even if, I, if, if it's not me that's playing, uh, that there it's complete programs where it's completely c- contemporary music. Mm-hmm. Right? Or within, but that's also a wide spectrum of music that could be, of course, right. programmed in, in, in any given concert. Um, but I'm also a major advocate of mixing them, mixing both the standard classical, Western classical canon and contemporary together. But I always have to find a thread of where it works. So yeah. Like mixing Monteverdi and Chelsea or doing like 17th century Baroque and doing modern or post-war Italian composers. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, for me, it it makes a lot of sense in showing an interesting lineage of writing styles um, for any given instruments and how we've grown from this to that and showing threads. Yeah. So not just like slapping this together and that together. Right. But but <laughs> that would just um, be poor programming. No, of course. But <laughs> but trying to I'm always trying to create a visceral experience and not yeah. something topical um, for both myself as a performer and those I'm collaborating with, but also the audiences that will come to hear these things. And I think it's also very interesting to do uh, you know a few box suites and juxtapose it against some dr- some other some modern you know composer of now German composer or not German or or maybe it's Italian or maybe it's uh, Cambodian or whatever it is and maybe there are links between the two that maybe they were inspired by this box suite or or by box polyphony or whatever it may be and try I'm just trying to find narratives and dialogues yeah find ways I can make create dialogues between the old and the new yeah that's great um I uh, want to switch gears for a second and uh, talk about Julius Eastman mm-hmm. for a minute. Um, yeah. So you just organized and played on this uh, very well-attended and <laughs> well-received uh, Julius Eastman portrait concert at the Chicago Cultural Center. And you also you had this, was it almost the same program or was it just the, um, the piece for 10 cellists that you played elsewhere with another group? Um, yeah, so uh, with the, um, I have, like, for like, over a year and a half now, been actively performing or involved in some type of curation or development for some Julius some concerts centered around Julius's music. Um, and the concert we did at the Cultural Center was a, it's not exactly the same, the one that, that I did in um, New York City just a few weeks prior. Mm-hmm. That okay. one was, in, that was part of a, a giant Eastman um festival actually i see okay talks and conversations and art new artworks interpreting old work but very much like in honor or um 
homage to him as well. That's great. Um, but on the specific concert I played on, there was the same prelude to the Holy Presence, which mm-hmm. was actually a vocal work, uh, improvisation that Julius originally recorded back in 1981 for a radio broadcast mm-hmm. that was to accompany the uh, the cello piece, which was originally written for dance, was written to accompany a dance work mm-hmm. at the kitchen also. So it was all held in the kitchen, so it was kind of a full circle. Um, but also on there were re-premiere, like a re-premiere of a, a work whose score was completely lost and there was no recording uh, oh called Trumpet. So, and that was transcribed uh, by Christopher McIntyre, trombonist and um, arts advocate as well, based out of Philadelphia. Um, and also on there was Mackle, mm-hmm. which is a piece that was from the 70s, I believe, uh, late 70s, um, for four um, vocalists. And for for the benefit of, of people who don't know who Julius Eastman is, just because I didn't I had no idea who he was before you asked me to play on yeah. the Chicago concert. Um can can you fill people in a little not to put you on the spot as no, a no, Julius no, no, Eastman no. historian, but No no no. <laughs> I mean I'm not a historian, but I, I've been living through his life for a while now. Yeah. Uh it's a composer that was uh, from Ithaca, New York originally, but very active in Buffalo, New York, um, in the um, early 70s through an initiative called the Creative Associates, which was started by Lucas Voss, another American composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, made his way to New York City and was very active both in the downtown music scene, new music scene, as well as uptown. <laughs> we <call it> that. <laughs> you know, your Lincoln Center and yeah. Symphony Center, all these things, your true... Um, Epicenters of high the, culture. The approved art spaces. Exactly. <laughs> Voila. Um, so he was active in both in both worlds um, and worked quite heavily with the still active and major proponent for contemporary music, the SEM Ensemble, which is run by Peter Kotick. Um, and um, he did quite a lot of work, both known as a pianist as well as a vocalist. Later, parts of his life really known as a vocalist, I mean, outside of you know, composing quite a a lot of music, including a symphony and opera, mm-hmm. uh, lots of chamber works, bass, really writing for for the people he was around, not necessarily having like a full group, but a lot of these works were very much so for a long time premiered by SEM or played a lot by SEM, if not specifically by himself and a few collaborators along the way. Um, his life was kind of short-lived. He lived up until 49 and died in 1990 uh, back in Ithaca, New York, quite a tumultuous kind of end to his career. And part of that link is that um, a lot of the scores were lost. Scores, many recordings were lost at the time, many given away, but then the people or the holders of those scores and recordings um, couldn't find them. So due to um, um, composer, and now we really have to call her historian, uh, Mary Jane Leach, based in New York now. Uh, She was in New York City at the same time, kind of revolving in the same circles. Uh, She was really kind of the spearhead behind um, trying to bring these scores back, you know, find them, find where is an archive. There was no archive, okay, so she's going to start an archive of it and so that he does not go, uh, he doesn't disappear. Yeah. The scores disappeared. It it would really have just been a memory. And he all but disappeared for a while. Yeah. Nobody knew that he was that he had died for like yeah. eight, eight months. months. Yeah, <laughs> after he died, the, the obituary came out. So 
Um, so Mary Jane is really kind of like the one we have we truly to thank. Of course, those are the people that came forth and kind of helped her. A lot of stopping and starting false leads and who had recordings, who did, who had a cassette tape, but they actually there was no cassette tape in the cassette tape holder, but they <laughs> had a, a label that said, of course, yeah, th there was this piece on it or this concert or whatever. So, um, and luckily in 2005, um, via lots of leads and collections, including the engineer Steve Cullum, who we have to thank for many, uh, having held many of the master recordings for a few specific pieces that were recorded uh, during the 70s and 80s. Um, a recording called, uh, a release called uh, Unjust Malaise mm -hmm. came out, which kind of helped bring, uh, start this kind of like renaissance of Julius. Yeah. And then came, okay, so the pieces are out, so do we have scores? Yeah. What scores are available? Can we play these pieces again? And um, the finding of more of those things and the starting, I think it really a lot of it started with the piano works because those were easily accessible. Mm -hmm. And then later, um, the big cello piece, Mary Jane had found two pages, I think, of the Holy Presence. That's all that really existed that was left. Mm -hmm. And that was at the New York uh, Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center. Eventually, Clarice Jensen, cellist who runs um, ACME, which is the American Contemporary um, Music Ensemble, um, she did an amazing job of transcribing, a, a heart aching, I'm sure, uh, job of transcribing the the full score back to its originality, or at least as close as we possibly can get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as Julius was sometimes known for changing a few things between performances um, in the scores, which is totally fine. So th there was a fluidity that was still very humanistic about the work that always kept it fresh. So certain things, uh, ways I'm interpreting, just like we do now with even normal, you know, scores from the normal canon, you will never play it uh, the same way twice. Yeah. Um, so sometimes, but sometimes, not the notes, I don't think the notes really change, but maybe some of the, some things that had kind of cellular directions. Yeah. Um, how that's ordered and sometimes in, in certain performances altered and changed. Um, so that's Julius. So he has quite a wide breadth of works that he did write. Um, some are very much so still lost. Some recordings exist, or we have titles at least for some of them and been able to um, chronicle those. Um, but yeah, that's Julius. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm, I am kind of, I guess, a, a new champion. There have been people, that, you know, of course, been out there working to kind of keep his music going. Um, and I guess in the last four or four years, I've been one that's been, that's come become more and more interested in him, uh, in his work, in his life, uh, but also helping to kind of change the narrative from this awful, tumultuous ending mm. and really just more so to embrace uh, the genius that he actually was and the works that he has left us with mm -hmm. and to continue carrying the torch and showing that this music is beyond worthy and is definitely a part of the American you know, contemporary music canon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think? I mean, I I feel like um, I feel like you know more and more. This is we're entering a period of time where people are becoming much more aware about uh, aware of how white male and Eurocentric uh, or white and Eurocentric like most Western music is, um, and I'm I'm wondering if if what your thoughts are on the fact that, you know, Julius Eastman uh, was a black man and 
do you feel like this is sort of the ideal time for like more of a renaissance to be happening of his works? Do you feel like we're like, I guess, as a musical culture, do you think that people are more ready to uh, say, like, give this guy like more credit for, you know, the credit that he didn't get mm -hmm. like during his life? Do you feel like this is sort of the time that people can really embrace him more? Um, I do. I mean, I think a lot of people did embrace him then, but there was definitely a, a major rife between what was acceptable, what could be shown, how one could emote. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's hard to say, is it now the right I time? I know, I'm, I'm asking you to do a lot of speculating. I'm no, sorry. No, <laughs> it's hard to say, is it the right time? Because I was obviously not there in the 70s. Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately. Um but, you know, it, it was a very difficult time, I think, for him. And I think he was torn between many different worlds and fighting many different demons about what he should do, what he shouldn't be doing, and how to stay as authentic. I think that was one of the things definitely dealing with authenticity mm -hmm. of himself and being unapologetically um, himself yeah. in every possible way. Um, and now I think it is a time... It is one time <laughs> where where we can definitely um, really revel in the beauty and not let it be kind of like this flavor of the month thing. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, now back to your regular schedule programming. Right. Yeah. It's but really to really embrace him and show that, you know, this man was truly a genius. Yeah. Both as a composer, but also as a performer. Mm -hmm. it, for me, it, and many people I've talked to, you know, his recording of eight songs for Matt King is, you know, untouchable. Yeah. You know, it, and for, and for me, it is the seminal recording. Mm -hmm. uh, he literally embodies that role with, like, for those that don't know, eight songs for Matt King is written by it's the uh, late bridge yeah. composer, uh, Peter Maxwell Davies. It's so great. And <laughs> uh, for solo vocalist and um, for mixed chamber ensemble. Um, and so he just did wonders with that work, on top of many of the works he did himself, but also his collaborations with Meredith Monk as mm -hmm. well on Dolman music and many other works that they did together. It's just, um, he really was amazing. Uh, and I do hope that, you know, I, I will do it as much as I possibly can, and <laughs> those others, colleagues of mine that are, that are becoming champions and transcribing more, doing more transcriptions of works that are coming up, or recordings that are coming up. Yeah, I think it was hard then, and now we have to be, I think we have to, we are faced in a situation where we can either ignore what actually possibly happened yeah. then that led, that could have led to his demise, um, and try to find a way to truly address, like address it positively and not with complacency. Yeah. Um, and be as honest as possible and find a way to, as a community, take care of each other. Yeah. You know, and, and not let it just be this against this or them against me. Yeah. Um, and show that there is enough, there truly is enough room for all the narratives and all the voices. Yeah. So um, now is definitely time for Julius, and I think people are ready to accept it, his music truly and wholly and fully, and uh, show that, you know, I'm... Some have said it's like post-minimalism. Some say it's, it is minimalism. And there's things that are just completely not minimalism at all within. Yeah. There's Julius's canon. It 
there is a period which it, which is so it's so minimalistic, and there's other things that are completely. It feels like it could have been written yesterday. Yeah. And there's other things that it does sound dated, maybe from the seventies. But I have a major affinity for a lot of art and work that came out of the seventies and eighties. So um, it's still very fresh mm-hmm. and still very visceral. Um, and I think yeah, it's uh, it's. It's time. Yeah. yeah it's definitely <laughs> it, time. It That's is time. my short answer for that. <laughs> um, great. Uh, do you, I can't, rem- you may have said this already. Do you have any other uh, performances of his works coming up? Um, yes, in May, mm-hmm. uh, May 21st, I think is the date. Um, I'm traveling back to Los Angeles uh, to join my colleagues from the, the Monday Evening Concert Series, which is run, run in by the artistic director, Jonathan Hepper, also. also uh, amazing percussionist. Um, so we'll be doing um, Feminine out there, which is for Mixed Ensemble. And what a great work. Um, and then we'll be pairing it off with works uh, pia- works for piano, but for two pianos by um, Meredith Monk, because mm-hmm. they have a close, very, quite close relationship in collaboration together, um, that um, Ursula Oppens, the pianist, and Gloria Chang will perform together. So we'll that that will be that concert. So that's like my next Julius concert coming up. Yeah, <laughs> your next date with Julius. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you also about your your work with, um, you know, performing cello with electronics because um, you just got back from well, not just but sort of just got back from uh, yeah, clus- uh, cluster festival in just days ago. Really. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's not like you're busy or anything. No. Um, <laughs> Um, so you just uh, got back from Cluster Festival in Winnipeg, right? Yeah, Winnipeg, um, Manitoba. Yeah, and Canada. you performed, was it a program of all cello and electronics? No, actually, uh, that program, I kind of curated something a little different. Uh, that program featured a mostly works that were all written for me, except for one of them. Nice. Um, so um, it featured uh, a work by Monty Atkins, a British composer, from uh, living in uh, West Yorkshire. And um, Pierre-Alexandre Tremblay is a Quebecois ke- co- composer from Quebec, in Canada as well, but is based, has been based for like the last 13 years, I think, or so in Canada, uh, sorry, in England as well, in the north of England. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Oliver Thurley, uh, young British composer, also based in the north of England. <laughs> Uh, for those of you that don't know, I lived in the north of England for yeah. quite a long time, so <laughs> these are some close collaborators of mine. But um, the the Tremblay and the Atkins are the two with that involve electronic component components. Mm-hmm. The Atkins um, is a fixed media work, uh, and then the Tremblay is for uh, interactive electronics, and the Thurley is completely acoustic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also had a work by Chinri Ong. Mm-hmm solo cello and that's from that's actually the oldest work on the program and that was from 1980 oh. uh, very early work for him um, that kind of came out of his escape um, from the genocide killings and the, the Khmer Rouge mm-hmm. under the reign of Pol Pot um, so that work was actually written for the late cellist Mark Johnson of the Vermeer Quartet yeah um, so and that's actually a work that I've been playing for a very long time over well over a decade now. Um, so, and the, the, the Thurley was a world premiere, actually. So, uh, so it was a wide range of pieces, but yeah. they all dealt with specific types of everyday sounds or, um, 
or or kind of the matter underneath um, yeah. everyday movement um, and forms of, of, rem- of remembrance uh, or nostalgia. Um, so it had kind of, maybe it was a people's music program essentially in that mm-hmm. way um, that really dealt with kind of human nature in that way. Yeah. Um, That's great. So that was that program. Um, I w- I'm wondering um, for you with cello and electronics, um, and I'm, you know, I'm of course I'm like biased because I'm like trying to get into more like cello mm-hmm. and electronic pieces right now myself. And I'm wondering uh, what for you is particularly appealing about uh, performing, performing with like cello with electronics as opposed to say, um, you know, performing just a solo cello piece or playing with other people, say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I, c- what was the first? I think it was actually playing with, uh, playing the works of Joan Jean Renault because uh, I had dealt a lot with looping mm-hmm. and looping lines and learning how to do that. Yeah. It takes a little bit of practice. rather badly uh, <laughs> in the beginning. It's such a, gosh, back on it. But it was, very, it was a learning experience. Um, <laughs> but um, I eventually started to try to find a way that I could extend the voice um, of the cello and of myself, you know, of my sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, to become something even bigger. So for me, that was like really exciting to kind of discover the work works out there and then discovering um, uh, Mario Davidovsky's synchronisms, very early electronic and uh, work. He'd, he'd written many synchronism pieces, but mm-hmm. there's a, a cello one. And so that's like an early version of all of that. And um, and just, I kind of started, I, you know, you have to go back in order to go forward yeah. in some ways in, in respect to the canon and seeing what has been done before you, <laughs> before the the knowledge that you have of any type of idiom or or practice, whether it's artistic or not. Yeah. Um, so I started with a lot of those works from the 60s and 70s, really quirky, interesting works, and kind of saw what was their ways of doing electronics, ways of you know setups for those things, which were many times very very complicated because of course the technology was very right. different than than from what it is now. It's much easier to do a lot of these works and in a better where there's a better a way to do them. Yeah. So I really started finding my way through through doing these types of works and trying to understand my role in it, the role of the cello, the role of the electronics, because there are many situations where, you know, there's lots of crash and burns or right. the electronics will not work on any given performance or rehearsal and you don't know what to do. And so I really kind of made it my goal to start figuring out, okay, the electronics aren't really just electronics. They are the second instrument. Essentially, yeah. it is a duet with me. Regardless if it's a fixed media tape piece, I still need to kind of know what's going on really inside of it yes. and understanding that side of it um so i started working more with composers and more with electronic artists and sound artists and trying to understand what i could do to um to like kind of educate myself mm-hmm. on the on the medium um and the kind of the history of some of it of course i can't i can't know everything so mm-hmm. voila um <laughs> you can't no um <laughs> But I'm, 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 people tell me lots of things, and I learn as I go, really. Yeah. Um, and then it was kind of in, I spent some time studying in Switzerland, Basel, 
And um, it was there. They had a big electronic music studio. Uh, and I really started working with a lot of the composers that were there, working on pieces that we worked in collaboration with the electronic music studio on for electronics. And I discovered the Stockhausen solo, which is actually a piece for any solo instrument. Mm -hmm. And that became a very kind of pivotal period for me in working with electronics in a very different way uh, and learning how it all was pieced together and then uh, doing Brian Fanahoe's Time Emotion Study, which was just a beast of a piece, which I don't play anymore. Uh, <laughs> You're like, that was enough. It was <laughs> a great experience, but also just learning how to create new voices electronically yeah. and extensions of the instrument that can become even bigger and bigger sound worlds, essentially. I'm creating my own kind of big machine, as I was saying before, and being able to kind of revel in that and na navigate it and twist and take people on, like, interesting journeys that they never thought they would or hear sounds that they never thought they would you know whether that's like parasitic or <laughs> you know or 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 it's complete co comedic relief or it's extremely emotional and and post romantic in that way or it has many different hybrids so there's many different ways to be expressive through that medium yeah that's great um I'm wondering, do you have any other like upcoming projects or performances um, um, that you want people to know about? Yeah, well, um, over about, well less than a year ago, I uh, premiered like my big um, performance installation, which is called Ice Bodies, mm -hmm. which is for um, a performer <laughs> and a ice cello and um, these glass sound sculptures that are distributed in space of wherever I'm presenting it. They're normally always museums or galleries. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a derisional work that's inspi heavily inspired by a, a work originally called Ice Music for London, which was created by or conceptualized by um, the artist Jim McWilliams and Charlotte Mormon back in 1972. 1972, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in London, the Roundhouse. And uh, so I premiered that here, actually in Chicago. Uh, uh, last August, August two, 2017, and now uh, next month we head to Dartmouth College where I'm artist in residence this year. Um, and I'll present it as part of many talks and master classes, but I'll be presenting that, um, that project of this very technical cello <laughs> with, that has um, these, uh, like a hydrophone speaker, which is basically a speaker that can be immersed in water and frozen, um, but also with these uh, piezo pickups that are also in, inside of it. So basically I've electrified or brought to life uh, this kind of inanimate, hypothetically inanimate object. And I perform it, I play, I perform on the cello. There are no strings, so it's very much so a conceptual idea of the original cello, but the cello is also colored obsidian and it speaks to many different types of social issues, that being of mental illness, but also um, injustice and police brutality is focused very much so in the, uh, African-American community. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that premieres, well, th there's a, another follow-up performance in uh, Dartmouth College um, on April 26th. Nice. Uh, anything else that you want people to know? Um, I have a concert April 18th. <laughs> I'm just quizzing you on all your uh, dates. April 8th. <laughs> I don't have them all in my head. They're on the calendar. <laughs> April 18th, I'll be... Um, in New York City at the Italian Academy, making my debut there, uh, presenting a new program 
Oh, yeah, you're playing some Chelsea, right? Yeah, so I'm doing some work. So I'm kind of bringing back some works of Chelsea that I kind of put on back burner for some years ago. I haven't played them in a while, but uh, doing one of the the first work of his trilogy, solo for solo cello, um, called uh, Trifun. Um, And also I'm doing a work called Mak Gong, which is for any bass instrument. Mm -hmm. And then I'm doing kind of contemporaries of him, from Italy also. Um, Claudio Gabriele, this piece I've been playing for almost a decade now, I guess. Um, and then I'll do a piece by Matthias Pinche from 2001 for a cello and viola called Janos Gesicht, which is Janos's head. Um, yeah, that, that'll be that program. And then there's a special hidden piece that I, I will only divulge at the concert. So <laughs> uh, and that'll be a world premiere, yeah. Excellent. Well, it's so exciting. Thank you so much for doing this today, for talking to me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. All the cool stuff that yeah. you do. <laughs> Just keep doing all your cool stuff. and uh, I'm going to try. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. 